Good morning. My name is Barb Boylan, and I have the honor of reading scripture with you today. It is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Barb, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see all of you, as always. Uh, we are always very glad that you have joined us uh, in worship today. Uh, my name is Dave Hahn, if you don't know me, and it is my privilege to open God's Word with and for you today. So as part of a class trip, our son, Seth, was able to visit Washington, D.C. last month. He loved it. Uh, I remember taking actually a similar trip when I was about his age with my family. We went to Gettysburg, we went to Washington, D.C., and any other kind of historical sites that you would find along the way. And what my dad remembers about that trip is that I was the only one who liked it. <laughs> I've always loved history and feeling as though I was stepping right into the middle of it through seeing the places and the things that I had only read about or heard about. What I love about our nation's history is the consistent marriage of truth and sacrifice. Those who founded and led our nation believed there were certain truths that are and were self-evident. And that these truths were worth protecting and that, if necessary, they were worth dying for. There are, of course, lots of examples of that within the attractions and the monuments and the museums of Washington, D.C., including that of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, if you're familiar with that. Seth's group actually visited that tomb, which is in Arlington National Cemetery. They got to witness the changing of the guard, which is quite a thing, and they were even able to lay down a wreath at the tomb as part of their school group. It was a cool experience to be sure, and he got video of it and everything, so it was neat to see. The brief history, if you're unaware, of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is that beginning in 1921, the tomb has held the remains of several unidentified soldiers from several U.S. wars, beginning with World War I. Men or women who, though their identities were unknown, fought to protect our nation and all that it stands for. For the last 100 years, anyone could visit, consider its significance, and pay their respects. And in 1926, soldiers were first assigned to guard the tomb just during the daylight hours to ensure that no one stepped on it, climbed on it, had a picnic on it, things like that. Then, in July of 1937, its guardianship was moved up to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So for 84 years now, not one second has passed where it has not been guarded against those who intended harm and for those who wish to view it. And do you know why? Because mankind always guards and protects what it sees as valuable. 
Mankind always guards and protects what it sees as valuable. In the case of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, it is the truths for which these soldiers and others like them fought for and the sacrifices they made to protect those truths. As a nation, we realize that those things are to be treasured and that they are, in fact, that valuable. It is worth guarding 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as a symbol of their significance and the significance of what they fought for. In Matthew 13, Jesus told two parables that spoke of such treasures, and he compared them to the kingdom of heaven, if you're familiar. The first was an undisclosed treasure buried in a field, and the second was a pearl of great value. And each short parable ends with the one who discovered the treasure giving all they had to buy it. They sacrificed everything. That's how you know something is valuable. Last week, we listened as Paul gave us the secret to handling whatever wealth God would give us. Jonathan took us through those passages. And the point that Paul ultimately made is found in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 6. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future so that you and others may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, the wealth of this world is not our true treasure. Rather, the wealth of this world should be used to attain it. And anything that valuable is worth guarding, which leads us to today's passage. Paul concludes his first letter to Timothy with a two-phrase summation of the last six chapters that we've been going through over these last few months. And in these concluding two phrases, Paul continued in the habit he had developed to help identify his letters, writing his concluding remarks in his own hand and signing the letter himself. See, the biblical letters that Paul authored were likely dictated by Paul to a secretary of his choosing, who wrote down what Paul had said, except, of course, his concluding remarks and ultimately his signature. And that is why we find verse 20 beginning with the words, O Timothy. This is a very personal plea from Paul, Timothy's spiritual father. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So in verse 20, Paul pleads with Timothy to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to him. But what deposit is Paul referring to here? Well, let's look ahead to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. I will read it, but what we will read 
uh, is from Paul to Timothy. Verses 13 and 14 of 2 Timothy 1. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is a very similar instruction to what we read in verse 20. So friends, the deposit Timothy was to guard is the truth of the gospel of God. The deposit Timothy was to guard in verse 20 is the truth of the gospel of God. This whole letter has been about fighting against and pushing against and avoiding false teachers for the sake of the truth of the gospel of God. The gospel of God that was found in the sound words that Paul shared with Timothy and is now shared with you and I in his holy word. The Bibles that you hold, the apps on your phone. See, Timothy didn't invent his faith and the eternal truths that he held to. Rather, by the grace of God, he had received them from his mother and his grandmother and then Paul himself. And so now this charge is given him. Hold on to and guard that which you have received. You have received the gospel in and through your grandmother and your mother and my sound teaching. Now hold on to it. Friends, in the same way, you and I did nothing to earn the freedoms that we enjoy in our nation. But we have a responsibility to guard and to protect them because men and women sacrificed and fought and died to make sure that we would have them and so that we would be able to pass them along to following generations. And that same principle is all the more true as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word. As Christians, we have received the revelation of the truth of God by his word and through his spirit. We didn't make it up. We didn't figure it out. For millennia, men and women and boys and girls have sacrificed and suffered and died to preserve the truth of the gospel, and they are still doing so in other parts of the world today. And they did so to make sure that those who came after them would hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and guard God's gospel just as they did. And today, the call to hear, believe, guard, and proclaim the gospel as revealed in his word rests on us. It rests on us. And as the world around us grows increasingly rebellious to absolute truth, the stakes get even higher for we who believe and are charged with guarding the gospel as it is laid out in Scripture. Because no truth is higher and no truth is more absolute. 
We live, my friends, in a world whose mantra is there is no such thing as absolute truth. That might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Or, I know my truth. That's the world we live in. Call it postmodernism, call it reverse reformation. God's truth is under attack, and his enemies want to steal it from those who have heard it and from those who as yet have not. George Barna, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that name, Barna Poles, George Barna. It's the first time I've actually referenced George Barna, so mark it down. He is a famous pollster, if you don't know him, and a blogger. And he recently asked the following question of the people that he polled. He asked this question, where are you finding truth? And of those who answered, 42% said God is the basis for truth. 16% rely on inner certainty. 15% rely on scientific proof. 5% rely on tradition, and 4% rely on public consensus to know the truth. And there remains 18% to equal 100. And that remaining 18% said there is no such thing as truth, or they do not know its basis. Six in 10 people are unconvinced that God is truth, or that there is even such a thing as truth. And the implications of that, my friends, is huge. Today, even things like gender, biology, are no longer considered absolutes. It's relative, and it's personal, and it's preferential. And sadly, these deceptions have even made their way into the church. In another study, Barna asked evangelical Christians a similar question about truth. 52% of evangelicals polled said that they do not believe in objective moral truth. Meaning, most evangelical believers believe that the Bible is not inerrant and it is not able to be trusted. And with that worldview, my friends, comes spiritual and moral implications. Of those polled, 43% of evangelical Christians do not believe that God has a unified purpose for all people. 75% believe that people are basically good and are not sinful. 43% believe that Jesus sinned while he was on earth. These are believers. And 58% believe that the Holy Spirit is a symbol rather than a person. And here's how that all plays out, morally speaking. 44% of evangelical Christians believe that the Bible's teaching on abortion is ambiguous. 40% do not believe that human life is sacred. And 34% do not believe marriage is between one man and one woman. And the numbers get worse as the demographics get younger. We live, my friends, in a world that says, if it feels good, do it. Or everyone else is doing it, so it can't be that bad. Or 
as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's probably fine. And as far as I can tell, as hard as those numbers are to hear, there are only three possible reasons why this mindset has made its way into the church. We are not teaching God's Word. Two, we don't know God's Word. Or three, we don't believe that it is God's Word. So let's examine ourselves, Disciples Church. Jonathan and I, to the best of our ability, are teaching the fullness of God's Word and His Gospel every week. Avoiding nothing. It's who we have been, it's who we are, and who we always hope to be and jump all over us if we stray. Please. But outside of Sunday mornings, are we spending time in God's Word on our own or with others? Are we reading it and studying it and considering all it has to say? Do we know what the Bible says? And if we know what it says, do we actually believe that it is God's inerrant, holy, and inspired word, that the Bible is not words about God from mankind, but words from God to mankind. Not words about God from mankind, but words from God to mankind. Because there are good reasons to believe that it is so. No surprise, the Bible is the most widely translated, sold, and read book in all of history. And as such, no document has been so thoroughly studied, criticized, or dissected. Friends, we can trust that the Bible is God's word because prophecies made within it were fulfilled hundreds of years later. And science continues to prove what the Bible claimed was true long before it ever could be proven. We can trust the Bible is God's Word because it contains 66 books written by 40 different authors in three different languages over the period of 1,500 years, and yet its central story of God's creation and salvation of mankind is remarkably consistent and unified. There are 5,000-plus handwritten manuscripts spanning various times and places that have been uncovered and survived to this day, and they all tell the same story. We could trust the Bible because the earliest New Testament manuscripts date back as early as 20 to 30 years after the death of Jesus. And many of the specific names within it were alive at the time of their writing to verify what was said and done. Legends and myths, my friends, do not work that way. They don't come about that fast, and they don't include the details that we find in Scripture. We can trust the Bible because who makes up a story 
where its central figure asks to get out of his mission in the Garden of Gethsemane. Until he is ultimately killed by his enemies. Who makes up a story where women are the first to witness Jesus' resurrection knowing that their testimony would not be accepted in a court of law? Who makes up a story where Jesus' followers whine and complain and abandon Jesus at his greatest time of need? If we're going to make up a story that we're in, we're going to be heroes. We'll not have whined, we'll not have complained, and we'll have stuck through everything. And lastly, probably most importantly, we can trust the Bible is God's word because it says that it is. And Jesus corroborated it. Not just that God's word is true, but that it is eternal. Meaning, the word of God never stops being powerful, and it never stops being relevant. And as Tim Keller wisely said, if we can't trust what the Bible says of God, we cannot know the God it shows us. So do we know God's word do we teach God's word? Do we really believe that it is the source of truth? Because if we don't, we won't value it. We won't guard it. And we'll fall for whatever the narrative of the day might be. And that is exactly what was happening in Ephesus during Timothy's time there. Which leads us to the second part of verse 20 and the front half of verse 21. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. The irreverent babble and the contradictions Paul is referring to in these verses are coming from those who claim to be believers, but were identified by Paul as false teachers. And do you remember how we can identify false teachers. It's twofold. Through what they teach and through how they live. As one commentator put it, these false teachers thought academic pursuits and tangling with words were in themselves pathways to spirituality. They did not recognize the need for a comprehensive belief that changes the inner person and his behavior. This was about academic pursuits and a tangling with words. No interchange. No transformation. And Paul is saying, don't get into arguments with people like this. Avoid them. And I know that for some of you, me included, that's hard. That's hard. We want to stand on guard for the truth wherever we see it being pushed against. But Paul is saying, in some cases, you are finding irreverent babble and contradictory nonsense disguised as knowledge, and the best way to fight error is through speaking the truth of the gospel. 
not to go toe-to-toe around every little contradictory statement or every piece of irreverent babble, but to fight that error through speaking the truth of the gospel. In other words, our mantra ought to be, well, you may say, but here's what God's word says. You may say this, but here's what God's word says. Friends, this is why Jonathan and I don't do self-help or seeker-sensitive type sermons. We, we want to dig deep into the word of God, which is about God, by the way, not us. And then we want to tell you everything that it says. Even if it is not popular or easy to hear. And then we will ask and trust God to do his work in and through it. So we're not up here fighting battles around babble or around contradictory things. We're up here proclaiming truth, the truth of God's word. As I was thinking about this a little bit more this week, our Jehovah Witness and Mormon friends came to mind for me. Like all of you, I get occasional visits from both. And as I've grown older, I no longer employ the shut off the lights and die behind the couch method of avoiding them. I actually kind of get excited when I see them walking around our neighborhood, and I'll actually go and sit on the porch. Not because I want to get into a battle. I don't try to argue with them about the meaning of the 144,000 or which planet I could rule one day. That's a reverend babble. It's contradictory nonsense. Rather, I open up the word of God with them, and I talk about one thing, the one thing that matters most, the center of their issue. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Because you see, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other pseudo-Christian groups like the Gnostics of Jesus' day, believe they have a special knowledge that was revealed to them, in this case, 1,900 years after Christ died and rose again. Both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are things that, were, that came about in the late 1800s. And while they would say they believe in Jesus, they do not think he is God. But the Bible and Jesus himself says that Jesus is God, and that is their biggest problem. The 144,000 and the planets don't matter if Jesus is God. And so I engage them in the truth of God's holy word about his son and the salvation found in his gospel alone, recognizing that it is not me who is going to change their minds, It is not me who's going to change their hearts. So I pray and I trust that God will do what he always does. Reveal the truth, save the lost, and glorify his son. In the church of Ephesus, in every time and place in history, and even among us today, there are those who have heard false teaching, believed false teaching, and ultimately strayed from faith in Christ, if they ever knew him 
at all. And so for we who have received the truth of God's word and believed in the one it points to, it is our responsibility, like Timothy, to guard what we have been given and to proclaim it broadly and boldly. We have been entrusted with an invaluable treasure in the truth of the gospel found in Scripture. And unlike anything else, God says of His Word that when it is proclaimed, it always accomplishes what God intended for it to accomplish. It shall not return to me empty, says Isaiah 55. So knowing that, believing that, Why would we not make it central in all that we say and do? To speak the very words of God rather than our own. Why try to be relevant and attractional by soft selling or abandoning the word of God when within it you already possess one of the greatest and most powerful treasures this world has ever or will ever know? Do we really believe Do we really believe, my friends, that our words and ideas are more powerful and life-changing than God's? But understand, my friends, that apart from His grace, apart from the grace of God, lost men and lost women cannot understand the truth of God. So do not be too discouraged when people do not respond in kind. Don't be too discouraged. They have yet to discover the treasure in the field. They have yet to discover the pearl of greatest value. And honestly, they see our purchase of these treasures as foolish. But nonetheless, God in his grace has given them to us. And he has allowed us to know and understand them. And that makes us stewards of the truth. Certainly, as we know, we are stewards of the gifts and the finances that God has entrusted to us. But in addition to that, we are stewards of God's holy word and the truth found within it. And if this treasure is to be of infinite value, we're going to want to protect it. Protect it for our own sake and for the sake of others. But if we don't guard and protect the treasure given to us, it may be that we don't find that treasure to be valuable at all. If you're not willing to guard it and protect it, how valuable do you find it? Let's finish up with the second half of verse 21. It's a simple but powerful phrase. Grace be with you. There's a neat little nugget found within this phrase that's not obvious from the English translation, and it is this. The word you in this sentence is not singular, but plural. The Hebrew word here is a plural one. So it's not just grace be with you, Timothy. And it's not just grace be with the unbelievers among you because they certainly need it. Rather, it is grace be with you and with you and with you and with all of you. 
The unmerited favor and power of God is how one begins their life in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, it is here for the taking. Ephesians 2, my friend, says that we are saved by grace through faith. And it is that same grace and faith which sustains a believer in their life in Christ on earth. And it is what will carry us from this life to the next. We continue in Christ the same way we started. We never move past grace and we never don't need grace. So when you find yourself thinking, and you will, I don't know if I can live the Christ life. Or I don't know how to guard what God has entrusted me with. And I'm afraid to do so. Know that God smiles upon you in those weak moments and says, my grace is sufficient for you. Good. You saying you don't know how, you saying you can't is the beginning of me saying I can and I will. No matter what, no matter what it is, God's grace is enough, and he promises that it will remain on those he calls his own, doing for you and in you what you cannot. After all, God's grace is the source of the church's power. It is the very word of God, my friends, that says that grace is what sent his son to you and me 2,000 years ago, to live the perfect sinless life that we could not live to die the brutal, wrath-filled death that we deserved and to grant us the eternal life in God that we could never earn. And do you know when God did all of this for us? Not when you were looking for him. Not when you realized your need for him. Colossians 2 says that when you were dead in your sins. Listen, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against you with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When did he make you alive? When did he forgive all your trespasses? When did he cancel your record of debt? And when did he set it aside, nailing it to the cross? When you were dead. Dead people don't do much. The grace of God, my friends, comes to his spiritually dead enemies and he transforms them into living heirs of God. It is extraordinary. Christian, by grace, this is the treasure we have been given and called to guard. And obviously, I'm excited about it. But guardianship of this treasure may not always be safe. And it will not, it will not be easy. It is not easy. As admirable and as inspirational as we may find the guards who protect the tomb of the unknown soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there is one aspect of their guardianship that is unlike the guardianship we as Christians have been called to. So you go to the FAQ page of the Society of the Honor Guard website, which talks about the, unknown to the tomb of the unknown soldier, you will find the following statement. 
the accomplishment of the mission and welfare of the soldier are never put at risk. The tomb guards have contingencies that are ready to be executed if the weather conditions ever place the soldiers at risk of injury or death, i.e. lightning, high winds, etc. This ensures that sentinels can continue the mission while ensuring safety. It is the responsibility of the chain of command from the sergeant of the guard to the regimental commander to ensure mission accomplishment and soldier welfare at all times. The welfare of the soldier is never put at risk. How these guards are able to accomplish their mission and make such a promise, I have no idea. It is all wrapped up in whatever the word contingencies means. I have no idea how they accomplish it, but I do know this. The same promise has not been given to we who serve in the army of God. It has not been given to we who have been entrusted to faithfully proclaim and guard the truth of God's word. Our livelihood, our safety, our reputations, even our very lives may be at risk if we truly declare and stand on guard to protect God's truth. And Jesus told us it would be so, so don't be surprised. He said we would have tribulation and opposition in this world, but then he said, listen, take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And if the grace of God is sufficient to rescue us from sin and death, our greatest enemies, no doubt, certainly his grace is sufficient for whatever opposition we may face. As we guard the treasure that we and those who have come before us have come to own and receive by grace. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Disciples' church, by God's grace, we must know the truth of God. Believe the truth of God. Teach the truth of God and guard the truth of God. No matter the risks, no matter the opposition we may face, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until we, like the guards of the tomb, are relieved of our post. And he brings us to where he is forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in your grace you have given us your word both in your holy scriptures and in your beloved Son. There is no more for heaven now to give. Bring conviction where we treat your very words as less than eternal. 
as less than truth and as less than your divine revelation. We confess that we often act as the arbiters of truth rather than those who have received it and are called to guard it. Help us to avoid babble and contradictions disguised as knowledge and instead run to and rely on the truth of your gospel. We are a people who hunger for what only you can give, though to our shame we look elsewhere for it. Help us submit to your gospel to sit under its truth rather than over it and then declare it to those who have heard or believed it. Let us not be a people who respect but ignore your word, nor a people who attack and dismember it. Rather, help us to guard the truth of your word to our own minds and then as given opportunity to others. Give us courage when we are opposed and find our greatest joy in bringing glory to your name. In Jesus' holy, precious name we pray. Amen.